Loon TNS, King Spit, Adjust, Dolium, Nephilim, Modulation Systems. Liberation is the only thing that's left. In a mess, bioelectrical beings vibrating in the frequency of sound. You now tuned in to Fly Fidelity and Luke Bailey. First, First I say, what, what we're gonna, gonna do. do. Then you, then you say, say, I don't know. What do you wanna do? What we're gonna do, what you wanna do. I have an idea. You gonna dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You wanna get super flat, flat. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. <laughs> Incredible content for incredible times. Welcome to episode 26, season 2, featuring Big Juss. On this episode, we take a trip down memory lane and talk about his earliest foundations as a writer under the name Loon TNS. We also talk about his trailblazing days with Company Flow and revolutionizing underground rap with his own solo career and group NMS. Enjoy the conversation. You came up living between South Jamaica, Queens, and Harlem at a time when hip-hop was still being defined. I mean, for the sake of contextualizing that time and place, can you talk about your earliest experiences through the social lens of hip-hop? Yeah, I came up between Manhattan. I was born in Manhattan. I'm, I'm a product, I guess, if you'd say an interracial hookup, when it really wasn't too cool to raise a mixed child. Um, I was in you know, child services for a while. And I spent time in Harlem. I spent time in the South Bronx when it was burned out. Uh, and I finally, uh, you know, by the time I got around four, I spent, I, I spent the majority of time in Jamaica, Queens, which was definitely a special place. And it was an area of Queens called Abbotslade Park, which for people who know or don't know, was a famous area. They called it Black Hollywood. And there were, uh, you know, Coltrane lived there, Count Basie lived there, Ella Fitzgerald, Milt Hinton, Tom, uh, Jackie Robinson, Babe Ruth lived there. You know, Babe Ruth was supposed to be mixed. Nobody knew that. Or, you know, they said he was white, but he was actually mixed and he lived there. Uh, James Brown lived around the corner. He, he uh, rented out our garage, basically. So I got pictures of uh, me sitting on James Brown's life a lot, but it would... Yeah, so it was a was an area that already had musicians that were you know had may have left that area as the newer you know then then the newer generations came in, so it was always an area filled with music. When you think back at that time, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions in terms of the earliest foundations of hip hop? Which I know you have a first hand experience of seeing develop and mutate, don't you? Yeah, yeah, uh, hip hop. Well, you, it's the rise of club music and hip-hop really kind of took place at the same, around the same time. I would say maybe dance music had a little bit more of the edge because actually they promoted clubs and stuff on radio. So I think there was a sound of New York before hip-hop actually formed, and each borough had their own sound, but it was these 
competing movements that were both trailblazing, you know, and they both were taking place at the same time and they shared the same equipment. They, they shared a lot of aspects that was really the same, but the music was, I guess what I, what you would consider early hip hop consisted of everything. Um, but this is before anybody kind of knew it consisted of everything, you know? So the two things were going on neck and neck. They both, uh, there were music that were both played in the in clubs. They were both played in the streets. Obviously, at a young age, I'm not in the clubs, but I was on the streets. And I lived in an area where we had a dedicated sound system that was called Infinity Machine. Right. And some of, you know, in some of these early records that were being played, you know, weren't hip hop records. They were records like... Uh, uh, Love is a Message, MFSB, it was a huge record. This record came out, if you think about it, 1973. And, you know, I consider some of these pioneering years of 77 to 82, but Love is a Message was killing. It was a New York anthem in the streets before then. And it was a huge record. And it was a record where you had to actually make it sound like a record, but it was a break. You weren't spinning all of love as a message, but not. But you couldn't just rock it as a break. You literally had to make it a record that you could rock for like, that people could dance to for like five, 10 minutes. Like it, 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 it was its own thing. So to me, it was a very influential record that people should really, especially generations now, if you want to know the sound of the street, you should challenge yourself to try to make love as a message of a five minute dance break. You know, just off of the little bits and pieces of that record. So that was one of the records where it had that particular sound. It was nothing. It wasn't hip hop. You can't call it hip hop. It was its own thing, but it was a theme of New York. Then you have a record like uh, uh, John Davis, Monster Orchestra, I Can't Stop. Same thing. It's a disco record. You know, it's a dance record. And they were mixing it for dance. They were mixing it their own way. But like in terms of what you heard in the parks and on the system, we're only taking that little bit, you know, that comes in almost at four minutes of that record and right. just bringing that back and forth, but doing it to the point where people had to kind of rhyme off, you know, rhyme over it. So you had to rock that for five minutes. And these were like, you know, huge monumental records that to me, there wasn't a sound of hip hop. It was just the sound of these records, you know, then you then in 77, obviously you have Trans Europe Express, but then you also had Strawberry Letter 23, both of them huge, huge records in the streets that I you can't. I don't know what you want to consider them, you know, right. but Trans Europe Express was, you know, was flipped, mixed, edited, changed, whatever you want to call it up and down, like for five years before you even got to Planet Rock. So Planet Rock took it to a whole other era, you know, era and a whole other, it just was, it was the accumulation of basically hip hop coming into its own with the younger generation, but Kraftwerk, Trans Europe Express was rocking for like five years straight, you know, and it was a huge, huge sound that I can't consider or you can consider necessarily was hip hop, but a foundational moment of hip hop. So the sound of the of the street was completely different than what you obviously heard on the record 
and you know for the people who were in the clubs at the time which was more of a you know kind of like a dating things for the more mature crowd but the equipment shared was shared with both you mentioned the word foundational was cool herc on your radar as a kid back then Cool Herc wasn't on my radar as much as Grandmaster Flowers was. I think Grandmaster Flowers, to me, his tapes were out before I heard Cold Crush. So before I heard Cold Crush, the sound of the streets was Grandmaster Flowers in, in my neighborhood. And records like Captain Sky, the Super Sperm record was he was big those are the sounds of the streets so yeah it wasn't i heard my cold crush my first cold crush maybe two years after that that late at that late after that yeah the sound the sound was definitely completely different but the mixing aspect of it was the thing that joined it all together right that was the, glue. the sound that was the glue that sonically adhered everything and, and, and brought it all together. You had to mix in the clubs. You had to mix on the streets. The same thing. You just mix differently. You mix the record in different parts. Right, right around, uh, right around uh, Planet Rock, to me was a time where I can kind of see the youth of the city coming together. Mm. Where all over the city, you know, these these records before were were kind of records that you know were almost theme songs to the city, and I saw that being a theme song to the city, but wasn't of that generation. Was wasn't of the dance generation. wasn't of, of of songs that were on the radio. Was its complete unique thing onto itself, and that definitely was the first record that hit. And obviously, records that came after uh, Grand Mixer, DST, same and and eighty two, same same time frame. Eighty two was like a year where everything kind of changed from what it was. The, the the kind of blending you didn't know what it was it was just all mixed together so it really becoming its own thing mm. and how old you at this point i'm a i'm a child i'm in elementary years but you know this goes uh, me hearing music in the streets into in the parks basically in queens i could hear five six seven eight years old i can hear it out my window so I can I can hear the, I can hear I can't stop being cut outside my window in the summertime at nighttime and, and hearing, you know, the park Dope. jams go to like three in the morning. Dope. So that that's what I first that's what I first heard before I heard anything else. So before I was able to join or even go to the park to actually see the systems for themselves, I've heard them beforehand. So my first thing was listening, and my second was actually being able to go to the park and kind of partake in events. Incredible. Incredible. Going back to a different period in your life a little bit earlier, can you talk about mm -hmm. your years in high school and going from New York to a real military-run school in Georgia, which meant you being out with the city for a few years, didn't it? That had to be a huge shock to the system, being out of New York and into Georgia in this real military-run school. 
Um, yeah, it was, it was huge. It was, it was completely different. I was, you know, I didn't have, I had a kind of an abusive relationship at the house. I, I was kind of out on the streets and at an age where I, where you really shouldn't be, you shouldn't be homeless in junior high school, basically. You shouldn't be, you know, 12 years old and not having a place to, to live. You know, it was a little bit too early. So my relationship wasn't good. And the lady who actually adopted me tried to get an order of protection to keep me away as a minor and actually took me to court over it where the judge was looking like, this is crazy. But at the same point in time, you know, she, she went through a lot of things. Part of this interview for me is trying to kind of figure out you know, things that we went to, went through and, you know, kind of make sense of it all for her. So she went through a messy divorce. She had a lot of problems going on with stuff. I understand what was going on. She took it out on me, but you know, she was a, she was a really popular teacher. She taught LL, Cool J. She was a popular teacher in Queens. Um, And she just, I guess at some moment of time she you know she put her effort into the students and I kind of was the one that fell out the nest so they shipped me off to military school and military school was literally no joke it was just a completely other different thing not only that I had to go in the summertime so it really kind of felt like it was a a, kind of like a school prison bid I guess is really how how you had to say it. It was Lord of the Flies. It was kids with rank and insignias over other kids who didn't have rank. It was, you know, beating your ass and quiet, like all the things that kind of take place in prison that, you know, actually took place in school. And your only out was to, you know, really play sports or, you know, be a good fighter, I guess. You know, I was little, I, you know, I, I knew how to play sports, so I tried to play sports to actually get out of it. But you know, but I would come home on the, I would come home in the winter times, you know, during Christmas, and you know, I would catch up on everything else. But I, I was definitely out of it. But it kind of took me a lot. It took me more out of the graph years. Kind of took, and that that was critical because I was still writing at a time and there's a lot of things that come in with writing, including rocking and stealing your, your paints. But when you're homeless, you also got to steal your food and stuff. So I didn't have to steal food or anything anymore. So that part was good, you know, but I, yeah, I missed, there were years that I completely missed and I could only come home and get records and get mixtapes and stuff and kind of bring them back down to school with me. So what was that first year experience like and, and what helped you make it through what must have been, you know, some of the hardest days and experiences of your life? You mentioned sport. Were you writing any music at this point at all? I wasn't writing any music, but Prince got me through. I mean, music was huge. So Prince was super big at that point in time. Um, I first got into Prince, you know, 1999 album. But even before that, with the time and the song Girl, I liked that before I liked Prince. But 1999, and especially like more of the B-sides, Something in the Water Doesn't Compute, Lady Cab Driver, I was attracted to the the B-sides and stuff. So Prince, at many points in life, was some of the only music that played that actually got me through life. 
because it was the first song that I kind of listened to and was like, oh, wow, he's really trying to say a message, but still trying to say it not a hokey way, but a cool way. And, you know, that song was completely huge. So that, all the Vanity stuff, all the Sheila E stuff, all, you know, Vanity Pretty Mess was, was a big song. So I took these songs, then I took songs like Davy DMX, One for the Trouble, um, big song, you know, and I took these down there and that, and they kind of held me down. They also, I sold, you know, I sold mixtapes to these kids in school who didn't know anything about the music. So I had my own way of being kind of a cool kid where I kind of didn't get beat up. So between that and sports kind of saved me. But my first year, I mean, I went to summer school and my first full year down there, my, my roommate, we had like four man kind of rooms. My first roommate in my first uh, semester, like he went home on leave and just com- killed his whole family because he, he hated the school so much. Wow. And from what I was aware, he didn't even go to jail. He got put in some type of government program. I don't know what happened to him, but he certainly didn't go to uh, jail. He was 13 years old and he just went and murdered his own his whole family. That's insane. So yeah. So there was things like you know, things like you would expect that would kind of feel like if it was in a prison, you know, people getting raped with broomsticks, like weird, dumb stuff that Lord of the Flies kids would do. Right. Shit that you only thought would happen in the film. So out of that experience how do you think those experience prepared you for what would have been the crack era when you returned to new york you're straight out of this prison like school and into the crack era of new york that's a that's a huge difference right it was a com- completely yeah it was huge it was completely a different it was a different interaction I, when I first left crack when I actually went to military school you're having like the beginning of the end of the the prime hip hop era before it spread worldwide, where it was in its prime then, but it was already starting to go a little bit downhill. And coming back when it was in full swing, I I didn't know what to think. I mean, there were like literally these little plastic balls that were all over the streets. Like they just one day you, you didn't see them, the next day these little balls like littered everywhere. And they, I, I really kind of didn't understand it. It like it took off. Um, I was 
I had to come back. I was kind of like homeless on the street. I worked at the famous Sunrise Movie Theater, the first movie theater that got metal detectors. Oh, shit. Uh, yeah, you know, because of a shooting and the killing going on. Wow. Um, what cinema was that? A Sunrise Movie Theater. Sunrise Movie Theater. Right? Yeah, you can look up. It's now closed, but it was the first one that actually had uh, metal detectors. They literally, wow. literally had drug dealer nights, all of the biggest drug dealers that you know that you've heard about all of the fat cats and the Corleys and the Pappy Masons and all of these people went there with all of these early rap stars like Salt and Pepper or Fat Boys. Like everybody would be at this movie theater. What were they watching? Based... Um, shoot, early Scarface. Really, a lot of uh, really a lot of Michael Myers and Friday the Thirteenth. No. That's those are those are the ones that get you in trouble. That's where the shootings would start taking place in the theater. Halloween. Newsweek magazine calls it a superb exercise in the art of suspense, the most frightening flick in years. Halloween. The Chicago Sun-Times says it's so scary, I would compare it to Psycho. It's the kind of picture, says the Chicago Tribune, that forces you to sleep with the lights on. A masterpiece, says New York's New Times. Halloween, from Compass International, rated R. So yeah, I worked there. I lived with a I lived with a friend who like worked on rehab houses, and I lived in this rehab house, you know. And he was smoking at the time, and you know he stole some stuff. He well, basically he stole some stuff from me at a right around the time when the Edward Burns shooting kind of took place. So right around the same time, I was only a couple of blocks away. And that was the whole complete war on drugs uh, nationwide. It literally started in my neighborhood that I was in. So you had these TNT SWAT teams that were like, they weren't in regular police cars. They were like in kind of these Pontiac, like these early minivans. And and I'm like two blocks away of everything happening. I'm technically kind of living in a crack house. This guy who I kind of sell to in a house stole some stuff from me. And I, we, we had it, we had a sawed off shotgun in the crib. I was mad. You know, I was upset. He kind of came home. I went in the attic. I'm really going to, you know, try to take him out. Like the streets were different then. Like there was a lot of killing. Things kind of escalated and picked up and it, and it was just the way to be like kind of how it kind of is now. Um, that was like the first time where really things were like, you didn't really care about life. And I was literally about to take a life and and dude saw me. He was with somebody else and they literally ran downstairs and ran out the house. I didn't know if they fully left or not. I jumped out the back window and ran. I was right one block away from Guy R. Brewer and, I, and three houses away from the corner. I ran, to, I ran down the block and ran around the corner. By the time I got there, there were like 30 SWAT teams like running up wow. into the house. And, you know, that was huge. That was, for me, a big moment where I was a little bit too close to things and things and I had no control of it. And I was going with the flow and the momentum. And it just, you know, it wasn't what I was supposed to do. Obviously, I wasn't meant to do it, but I was kind of military trained. I <laughs> had some crazy ass school teachers who told us you know, military teachers and told about how they killed people in the Vietnam War and how they used, you know, a hatchet just to chop people in the neck and all types of weird stuff. So 
I came to I came back to New York with a totally different mind state, and thank God I didn't go the direction of of really kind of selling drugs. So that was a big thing for me, you know. And I was trying to sell drugs, and I got I, I jumped the turnstile, and I had a pellet gun and a big Rambo knife and an eight ball, and I had like a yellow, a bright yellow jacket, you know. And I jumped the turnstile, and there was a cop in the station, and he. And I ran down to the end of the station. I was hiding behind the girders, and he thought I had something. He pulled out his gun. I had to jump through the tunnels and run through the tunnel, and I came out. I was all covered in soot. You know, it was like my first kind of coming full circle moment where I'm back in these tunnels, you know, because the tunnels used to, you know, really, that was like you're, you're coming to Jesus moment. You had to find yourself in the tunnels, you know. To, to actually figure out how you can survive. But you had to go to the worst place you could possibly go in New York to figure out how to survive. But I f- find myself back into the tunnels again, trying to figure things out. And, you know, and coming out as emergency exit, completely covered in soot. And I was like, between those two events, I was like, yeah, crack is not for me. Thank God for discipline and hip hop. Yes, indeed. Indeed. So I... I got into other things, you know, I started to be old enough to go to the paradise garage on Friday. <clears throat> I worked at a, a, like a, a black bookstore where they had books like from Dr. Clark and Dr. Ben and Dr. Francis Cresswell saying I started getting a little bit of knowledge itself. <clears throat> I was expanding my surroundings, you know, and expanding my influence, hanging out in the city more because, you know, New York is a big place. A lot of kids in my neighborhood didn't really hang out in all of the boroughs and all of the cities. So you got to kind of have to hang out in other places to kind of expand yourself. And the Paradise Garage was really, really big for that, for escaping the cracker or escaping, you know, crime or the, whatever was going on in the city at the time. So what generation is graffiti in at this point? Like graph or what we call writing because you never would have ever said to anybody, hey, do you write graffiti? Right. So it was just, are you, are you a writer? Right. But the, the writing movement is older than all of this. So the writing movement is a movement that takes place in the early 60s. It literally had generational growth and, and, and trailblazing eras before it was ever incorporated into the elements. So literally, it's the first element. So graph was huge. It was kind of one of the only things that you, especially if you were a kid, the only thing that you can actually get in and feel like you were participating in something that was a big movement within the city. So I started writing because I couldn't, I didn't have a good, you know, I didn't have a good home life. So it was easier to stay out the city than most. I thought music would take, you know, would be the thing that took me there at an earlier age, but it was actually writing. I had to take piano. Uh, The lady who adopted me took piano. She played Rachmaninoff and she loved Shostakovich. All of that was going on in the crib. One of my favorite songs is Maggot Brain. So me finding you know, I had to play uh, Beethoven, Midnight Sonata, you know, which kind of has kind of similar to Maggot Brain. Right. So I that was a song to me that first where I kind of first figured out the composition to stuff and figured out I would be making music, but I wasn't allowed to play anything else but classical. 
So it turned me off, so I went to the street. Infinity Machine, which is one of the sound systems that was going on, just the word Infinity Machine to me was like a toy. It was like a, a way of wordsmithing and putting things together and trying to, having the ability to do anything on an infinite plane. So that kickstarted your journey. That kickstarted you into participating culturally and being a writer. It completely did. It wasn't MCing because I was a little kid. And, you know, to this day, I, I don't have a big mouth. I don't really like talking. I can talk. I just don't really, you know, I'm just a quiet kid. I've always been a quiet kid because I really never knew where I belonged, basically. So I was always searching for something. But, I, you know, there was an adage going on in my house where it's like nobody ever wanted you. You were abandoned. So it was never about looking backwards. It was always about looking forward. Mm. So Infinity Machine allowed me to think about looking forward and like questing for a style. And through that, through those words, wordsmithing came out to write on the walls, not to actually be a writer, to actually write on the walls. The two were like not connected right. at that point in time, except a voice trying to be heard. That's interesting. So, Right. So I wrote Loon. TNS was part of a crew, but I wrote Loon because uh, someone else, I really wanted to write alone, but that was too hokey and someone else wrote Loan. So Loon TNS, really Loon standed for Loan or Alone, because that's basically kind of what it was when I was writing. Got you. So, so I, I I had friends who wrote Antex, was a big friend, you know, was a, a, a cat who I wrote with or at an early age where we're starting 12, 13 and really getting into writing. <clears throat> he was a big cat for me, for us actually going out together. But yeah, writing had its own errors. Like it had its, you had to, it was a learning system. It was an educational system. So you had, right. You had to have hand styles. You had to know where to place tags. You, you had to know how to rock paints. You had to know how to do throw ups. You had to know how to do straight letters with a couple of colors, three or four colors. You had to figure out bur burners. You had to figure out characters. You had to know what yards to go to. Um, so it was a like a complete educational system while I was kind of kind of on the streets during the years I was on the streets more before military school. Who was crushing it the most in terms of bombing and pieces and blockbusters? Um, well, you had multiple train lines all over the city. You had writers from every borough. So you had a, a, a Manhattan movement that started before everybody in the late 60s. So that obviously I wasn't, a, a, wasn't aware of, but I was aware of, of certain writers actually, you know, spending time in Manhattan. So Snake and Stitch <clears throat> were big. Obviously Taki 183. Uh, Julio 204, Chi Chi, Crazy Car uh, Cross. I'm even trying to think of names that weren't as popular but were popular to me. Skylark, Cornell, uh, Agent, 
And then you had, you know, the twos and five writers, you know, the early Comet and Blade who just crushed, you know, crushed it for years. And then you had, you know, we had local Queens writers like Two Deadly, Say City, Nile, Rebel, Kane, Uber, Quartz, Black, um, Too Nice, So Five, So Fine. So there were a lot, there were even, there were local scenes that you had to start in the local, you know, the local little pond. You had to be a little tab hole in the local pond to actually even get to a point right. where you could start, you know, writing with the big boys, basically. So you had to kind of cultivate your style. And then you had to be original. You know, Stay I 147 was big for his uh, multicolored uni and mini tags. They were like flat markers, basically. And you had to develop a hand style with them that was harder to do than a regular marker. So he had these two co- these two tone color ink, you know. And so I I created a silver and green two two tone ink, you know, like eleven years old basically. That was really strong. It was ink mixed with paint, and you know I had tags up with it that were up for three or four years. Uh, and it was everything was about being original and feist. You couldn't really copy anybody's tag. I mean, it didn't work. First of all, you get crossed out, or if they catch you, you get beat up. So originality, just like with the hip hop, was definitely everything. But unlike the music, the music had a repertoire of songs that everybody played. And in writing culture, you didn't have people biting people's style or anything like that. You literally had to find your own style more than anywhere, anything else, any of the other elements. So that, to me, was a big part of where that came from the most. Mm. So doing things like uh, finding, uh, you know, you don't, I would go to the back of the house and tag the house with Lysol, like anything that was aerosol that I could find just to even practice tags. You know, you can't paint the back of your house and stuff. So, you know, I would just use things that would kind of, you know, dry up. You wouldn't see it. So, you know, I, I literally took a can of Easy Off Oven Cleaner, which was like an aerosol foam, and I copped tags with that all over the back of the house. And somehow the aerosol foam literally waterproofed the the stucco in the house. It became like a waterproof agent. And the tag itself would actually appear. The whole house would be bombed every single time it rained, basically. And that was like something I got... I got my ass beat every single time it rained. <laughs> every single time it rained, you know, I caught a beating because of that until the house got painted, you know, repainted over. But, you know, I took that and I went out and I, I tried to find the same, you know, concrete areas like I know bridges and bridges and stuff where you would probably see the water run down and stuff where it was kind of moist at and I would cop tags in those areas and they literally would stay and they stayed for years until somebody wrote over it. So it was things like that. Like I was quietly, you know, quietly really proud of basically. Cause you know, at that moment there was not, I didn't hear anybody else doing that to this day. I've never heard anybody else doing that.
in reality, I'm actually coming in my third wave, you know, in the third rate of the writing movement, you know, not the first, not the second, the third way. Or maybe you can say the fourth because you started off with signatures and you started off with pieces or masterpieces. Then you had your first pieces. Then you went to a throw up era and a two and a two letter era where basically people did where people like in did as many throw ups as you possibly can. And it wasn't about just being creative. It was just about being, it was about bombing. By the time I really started, everything was in play and you had to really learn how to do everything. So it was still a great time to, to be in the movement, but it was almost to the paint where it was almost to the time where like all of the, all of the trains were like completely bombed. It was like saturated. You had to really look for spots to actually try to write. Um, so, you know, from there it went to the streets, and then from the streets it kind of took off. But it was a completely, completely trailblazing time before my time. Right. Right. Me, I, I'm literally just trying to keep up with everything that's going on, which is way more than any other element. So if you, you know, if you were into dancing or if you were into footwork or floor work, you were popping or you were breaking. You know, some people did both and stuff, but there were disciplines. You know, music had a discipline. MCing was was really just localized, really at that point in time, but it had just really started to come in its own and like. Where we were in Queens, we had, you know, we had a unique sound of our own. And there were records like uh, Tom Brown, Jamaica Funk, that were, you know, were talking, you know, were songs made about Jamaica Queens, basically. And they were kind of added to its identity. And then, you know, <clears throat> Run DMCs. So when Sucker MCs came out, it was the same time where Grandmaster Vic was innovating and mixing like R&B and hip hop together, which a lot of stuff, if you think early Mary J. Blige and a lot of stuff that even Puffy was into, that was a sound that was coming out of Queens. So there was identity there that existed. And I would say through writing more than anything else, my identity came about more than anything else. Well, let's talk about identity. What can you tell me about the significance of your childhood friends, Shake and Antex, who are both important and equal part to this story and come up, aren't they? Um, yeah, they are. Uh, Antex was a was a, a cat from my neighborhood, from Adelaide Park area, just like Tripole Quest. Rest in peace, Fife and Jerobi. Absolutely. Like there was, you know, uh, on the other right, uh, uh, down the block, or right across the railroad tracks was LL Cool J. It was a lot. It was a lot of us basically in a little area. And Antex was one of those cats that was in that area, where you know he was like me, or he was a writer. So I'll have to say at this point in time, more than anything else, writers was the illest cats in the city. Most of anybody, like the whole writers, were the scouts. Writers were just the wildest personalities. Writers were the places that had no fear, or the people who had no fear and went anywhere. So writers were ill, and they kind of had, because I guess you had to organize campaigns, if you think it that way, for bombing. You didn't want to get caught. You had to organize stuff. So you became more of an organizer, and Antex was like that. He was a writer. He wrote Vega 5, but like me, he was an organizer. He was an orchestrator of, of 
bombing campaigns and going out and doing stuff. And so that tied with music, like those things kind of coming together where he, he was a glue to a lot of things kind of coming together in our area. He was kind of a, he took, he, you know, we, we were, everybody was kind of a leader, but, you know, you had to organize and actually right. kind of do things. And he was really one of the first cats in my neighborhood that, you know, I was particularly close to because actually a lot of times, you know, if I was homeless, <clears throat> I, I couldn't go anywhere to stay at anybody's house because the lady who adopted me, I, I lovingly call her Connie. You know, she would call, if she knew numbers to any of my friends, she would call them and say, if you take them in, you're harboring a minor. And literally people would be afraid to touch me <laughs> in that aspect. And and Texas mom, Christine, rest in peace, literally would take me in. Like, she didn't care about it. She went and met Connie, and she's like, this lady's off. You know, you can't take it out on the kid. You know, and I would actually, you know, would spend the night basically at his house sometimes when I didn't have a chance to, you know, I didn't have no place to sleep. So he was just, he was the closest thing that I had to a brother, basically. He's around, he's still doing his thing. So he's still an innovator. So through writing, we became little innovators through the neighborhood, you know, understanding innovation and understanding not biting and stuff. He was my first running mate from the graph era into the music era to get things kind of started. And then Shake was another one. Shake was just the, the one of the illest kids in the neighborhood. He didn't, like, I, I think he dropped out of school in, like at nine years old something like that. He was like an early dancer. He danced. He was like a professional. He was the first professional dancer that I basically knew. Um, and he danced for everybody. He danced for a lot of the large groups that were coming out at that period, like the new Jack Swing era. So Guy was one of the biggest, <clears throat> you know, biggest artists at that particular time. This is like coming up toward the end of the crack era, you know, this is start, you know, where I'm going to clubs, I'm hanging out, I'm doing stuff, I'm hanging out with Shake. Shake is, you know, got me backstage at guy concerts and got me backstage at at all types of events. And then got me at these parties that you hear about that you're not supposed to go to or, or the parties that you just, you know, where things happen. So that basically was huge for me. That's that's like the end of the crack era, like knowing the industry, understanding the industry from from not from the underground, but from the, its highest levels, understanding all of the fuckery that's going on with that, understanding how artists are just at the bottom, you know, the bottom of the totem pole. Like at that particular point in time, I figured that out at an early age and that kind of brought that in. So Shake was was a huge influence in what, what was going on and bringing me into it. But I had to leave that because it wasn't what I wanted to do. Like I had, I had no idea that artists were treated that way or the industry was so gangster or it was so sexist or it was so, so extra, just so extra. Everybody was so extra, you know, and they, they existed off of ego. 
So, you know, that was my first foray in and quickly trying to get out of it. At that point in time, I pretty much had to leave the city just to gain a new perspective. So I went out to California. Okay, so going basically to L.A., um, let me say when I left at that particular point in time, I made my first demo uh, with Damien from Guy singing backup on it and Guy's band basically uh, were, were the singers. I made my first song. It was still heavily influenced. It was kind of a, a weird variant of God Bless the Child. <laughs> But not that particular song, but I still called it God Bless the Child. And it was completely influenced by Prince. I couldn't get that monkey off of my back of him making free and how, you know, understanding how to make a song that actually had some type of a message and substance to it, but was a pretty dope song. So it, my version kind of was super hokey and it didn't <laughs> do what it was supposed to do. So, but when I left New York, you know, I, I left with uh, a early organized confusion before they were organized confusion demo. Um, I left with the Prince, the, the bootleg Royal Jewels um, LP. I left with a 30 minute tape of Sergio Latino, which at that point in time was, it is like a 30 minute tape on both sides, the same one song on both sides which was one of the illest songs ever to me. Um, I left with uh, Future Acid Tracks. I left New York with uh, Long ZD. Long ZD, this is Ska. The Jungle Ones in the Jungle. So uh, Ron C, Trendsetter, Ministry, Land of Rape and Honey. So all of my first stuff was at a point in time when all of these different genres and different things were all kind of becoming, mm. you know, into its own. And my first things were basically all instrumental stuff for the most part. I wanted to sing, <clears throat> but I felt more inclined to actually start making beats and making music. But yeah, they were more in, in, inspired by those things than they were hip hop. Because still at that particular point in time, I didn't use my voice like that. Well, I, I wasn't a, a talkative person. And emceeing in, in the classical sense to me, like me growing up, I want to give shouts to Dada Rock and SG. That, you know, local MCs, cats who crack jokes, crack mother jokes, who were loud, boisterous, just wild dudes. You know, and that's that's basically the stuff that you would hear on the mic. So a free form spewing of wildness and routines and things that they used to do. And and that point in time, MCing was still that to me more than it was really kind of coming into its own. <clears throat> so, yes, you still had. Yes, you 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 started to have, you know, you started to have things like uh, Big Daddy Kane. You started to have. KRS, you started to have De La Soul, Three Feet High and Rising. So there were things that were kicking in that took it to, that started to transcend it to the next level 
but I I wasn't quite there yet. I was too I was into everything else. Right, right. Hit that that and everything else. What do you think you learned from Damien Hall specifically about making music? Well, he he was there just being on my first demo. More learning learning music was really kind of on my own, and it really was kind of learning things through print. Learning how he had different types of song structures and different types of styles that he liked to use. Um, that was more of an influence, you know, than anything else that I could even think of. And if we're talking about influence, we can't not talk about the influence of radio and the impact radio has had on you. We've, we've been talking a lot in anticipation of having this conversation tonight. And one of the things that surprised me was how influential radio was on you in, in developing your voice and finding this identity we've you know, seen evolve over the years. For those that don't know, who was Frankie Crocker and what kind of impact did he have on Big Jess? Uh... Frankie Crocker was, uh, a, you know, a radio DJ who who uh, existed on AM before uh, FM really started to take off. So all of this time is right around the time FM radio really started to kick off in New York. And I guess it had more of an expanded base. And Frankie Crocker was just a really fly. He just said things really fly. He was an influence on a lot of MCs. Him and Hank Spann <clears throat> had these little rhymes, these little nursery rhymes that they used to say, but they used to say it in such a fly manner that it was literally the lingo and stuff that the early MCs picked up on. So radio was there before anything else, and it was through the radio that you really heard the sounds. You know, you heard the more popular sounds of the city, basically more than anything. Uh, um, but you also heard some of the early uh, club nights when club nights were first starting, started to be, you know, uh, promoted on the radio. That's where you, where you heard a lot. That's where dance music kind of was ahead of hip hop at that particular point in time. It's also, the radio is also the place where the rock stations, you literally could hear Stairway to Heaven every single day for maybe 20 years. But I, if I wanted to turn the dial on the radio, there's no, there's the chance of me catching Stairway to Heaven on the radio was, you know, so a huge song. Foxy Lady, a huge song. These songs were played every single day. You know, and it was through there that I picked up on uh, Maggot Brain, you know, more than any other, you know, I was, I was up on Sir Knows, I was up on Mothership Connection, but that's basically where I picked up on Maggot Brain. And Maggot Brain was, you know, a song that I would play over repeatedly. So there were songs that were played, you know, that were part of the radio that we kind of also had, a, you know, at the house. Um, Bobby Humphreys, Harlem River Drive, Gil Scott Living in a Bottle, obviously Exodus, Bob Marley, <clears throat> the theme from Shaft. The theme from SWAT. That was a huge. That was huge on the street. The, uh, the theme from SWAT. That shit was huge. It was a big. It was a big sound. It didn't last as long, but it, you know, it was kind of gimmicky in a way. But it was like a huge sound. All of these things I could hear on the radio, and in or all of these songs were songs that were on the radio that Connie bought and brought into the house. We had on the record player, and I would play on the record, and I would make pause tapes. So these. 
early, yeah. So Bobby Humphreys, Harlem River Drive, Trans Europe Express, Gil Scott in a Bottle, um, Quartz Through the Clouds. There were songs. These are some of the first, uh, you know, pause tapes basically that were made, and they were made taking stuff off the radio at first, and then getting the records, you know, going from record to cassette. So like radio, so rock radio was everything. And later on, we had a station DRE, and that's basically where I found The Cure, and I found The Smiths, and Depeche Mode. Um, you know, all of these things came before the radio, before I, I had the chance to actually, you know, I, I became fans of them through the radio before anything else. And of course, all of this music is almost preparing you for this moment later on without you even realizing it, which I find is the case with most of the artists we speak to on this podcast. You know, you're not realizing that you are being shaped and informed in some ways by these artists you're listening to. Fast forward to 91 and you're working for a record promotions company. What can you tell me about your job working at Libra back then? Um, Libra happened when I, um, uh, uh, moved back from California. I, I stayed in California for a while. Um, I actually was in the R it was right around the time when like the R and B movement was kind of kicking off and cats out there were wearing suits and, and hanging out in restaurants and were trying to be seen by like, it was just a weird scene. It's like, it wasn't, we were, we were on different, different planes at that point in time. I didn't feel like I fit in California because I'm still wearing camouflage and Air Force Ones. And, you know, no, I was not wearing an R&B suit. I was not trying to hang out in Spago or any type of restaurant trying to be seen by record execs or have little fake meetings and, you know, right. with record execs. At the, yeah, no, I was not into that at all. <clears throat> I didn't know really kind of what to do with California. So I kind of trekked back across the country and, got in all types of mischief, you know, to make money basically. And, um, I came, when I came back from California is when I, uh, linked up with, uh, Antex again, <clears throat> like I said, who's, who's been my childhood friend, right. you know, since 12. So I came back, I linked up with him and we, uh, moved to Philadelphia and with a cat named Jamal, we kind of moved to Philadelphia to try to find our voice. And this was actually not 91, but I think more like 92, 93. It was right when the roots were kind of, when you still could see the roots playing <clears throat> on the street. Got you. And, uh, and, and Dice Raw lived across the street from us. And it was like around this time, right around the time Illmatic came out, is when we left Philadelphia and moved back to moved back to New York. Um, Illmatic was a huge record in terms of, uh, I gotta say this nicely, um, MCs being scared. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Me getting hella excited and a lot of cats that you were here doing it were like, oh man, things just changed to the next level. <clears throat> so I moved, you know, we moved back to New York on that point. Darren hooked up with Libra, uh, with Jesse Mabry, rest in peace. Um, another caddy worked at Profile Records back in the day. Um, so he had work with Run DMC and he was doing, um, I guess what you call payola. 
he had a payola thing. He would get, you know, it was it was a company that wasn't officially sanctioned by the major <laughs> labels. You know, it had to be a separate outside company um, that she would literally, you know, stuff CDs. You, you'd have the artist that you're, you know, promoting, whoever it may be, you know, big or small, you know. So the biggest names, and there'd be money stuffed in the CD and it would be placed in, a, in an envelope and sent to a P.O. box. And then we helped him actually do college radio promotion, you know, so while he was stuffing CDs, we were hammering the phones doing, trying to get spins and ads for basically hip hop songs on college radio, because, you know, that's basically where you promoted that at. So all the extra money, you know, that was left over from the payola, we would use to try to put out records. Um, so we had like a little formula going on that was super dope, man. It was, it was really, really dope to be a part of that, you know, at that particular point in time. And, and it was during this point in time when we linked up with Jamie for the first time and we formed a basically kind of a production unit. Was, you know, there was a, a four or five of us and we all made music and we literally, Antex was the first person to basically say let's perform you know let's let's form a unit that basically did you know would do production for people so we were kind of like a all in-house shop man it was brilliant it literally was you know it was it was the best thing going we knew we were we knew we were going somewhere we just didn't you know we were on the track <clears throat> we didn't know what records or anything were taking off yet that didn't form at you know at that point in time nor did it really last long enough for it to fully take off, but it was the movement at that point in time. And, it, and you know, Jamie, LP, Jamie was company flow, you know, all to himself, basically. That was his thing. He had a demo <clears throat> that was out and it was one of the first records when we formed like a production unit. It was one of the first records that we kind of actually pushed out. And um, Jamie's mom, a wonderful lady had a loft, you know, 67 on Mary Street. You know, it was literally down the block from the World Trade Center. And it was and she rented out a room to me and rented out the little studio area where we basically kind of performed. You know, we had this little production group. Amazing. And we. It was complete. It was totally, you know, it was. It was in an area, it was right down from the towers. It was, you know, it was during the time when the first bombing of the Twin Towers kind of took place. It was like all of this, all everything was happening kind of all at this one point in time. And, you know, everything was firing kind of all, on all cylinders, but, you know, there were starting to be cracks in the, in the armor because there's, as it's always been with the music industry, it's like there's the there's the artists and then there's the executives and the executives completely think different than the artists and there's tons of things that they have to try to figure out and execute and pull off and buying out bars and having meetings and strip clubs and all of the things for a person who literally you know I never drink I've never drank I've never been drunk in my life so to actually try to do business in strip clubs and throw one, you know, strip, <laughs> throw ones at strippers. It was way, it was way extra. 
it was way, you know, and we, I was starting to see, you couldn't be both. You literally couldn't be an artist and an executive at the same time, at that point in time. It didn't exist. It didn't really happen. I never sweat another kid, I'm the Mac, Tom P, Mac. call me Punisher. Temporary damage to the glitter, it's effective when a female wants to get with this juvenile kid like I'm, um, like the likes of P up and down, the freestyle demigod, fully erect, the other kids is only semi-hard, you couldn't hold a fucking candle to my demo, ride it with your mom. It felt like to me what we were trying to do with official records after that was some of the first things where, where it was artist-centric. That was at least was my goal, was to try to create something that was artist centric for the label. But, you know, that but it, we were still on top of everything. I actually kind of got fired. I, um, I didn't get an interview for Atlantic Records for promotion. And I think Antex and Jesse just saw, you know, since I was actually living with Jamie in Manhattan, I think they saw like you couldn't straddle the fence you had to kind of be one or the other so they kind of fired me at one point in time and then me and jamie tried to literally you know figure it out you know on our own right can you maybe talk about being at that crossroads of having to choose between being an artist or being a record executive was that as easy of a decision as those early company flow records would have somebody believe it was you know you mentioned antex being the best friend of yours back in the day was it hard leaving it it it, it actually was hard leaving except both of us are are like two peas in the same pod he's just like me he's an innovator he's a cat who's always on to the next thing. And, you know, and that's basically was Dar what Darren was. Darren was already on to the next thing. I was already on the next, on to the next thing with company flow. So it was hard, but, but, you know, we would still remain friends and stuff. We didn't kind of talk for a while, but we still remained friends. And he just, you know, he went on to his next innovation. And to me, my next innovation was basically the start of company flow. Yeah, and of course, pre-company flow, you're developing official recordings with a group called Dominant Species being the first release on official records. What was that like <laughs> working with Dominant Species made up of MC Science and Downtown, which was a Brooklyn <laughs> duo described as being very much ahead of their time, if I'm right in saying that? Mm. Yeah, they were very much ahead. They literally were very much ahead of their time, but it wasn't actually... Official recordings is actually me and Jamie. Is that it's I started I started the record label after Libra because it was like shopping for a deal. We went to a couple of places. Let me just say that. I won't name no names, but I'll I would just say that at that point in time they looked at us and they saw an interracial group or they saw that Jamie was white. Whatever they saw in us, it wasn't on their radar to try to do. So the only thing that really made sense was continuing where Libra left off at and actually putting out a record, you know, putting records out ourselves, having our own record label, but doing it from an artist's uh, perspective, like where the artist basically, you know, is, is responsible for their own career and their own legacy. So that was the first thing that we put out 
before company flow. Right, right. So we, we put out Dominant Species, who I found out through Antex and another guy, uh, Freedom, um, is where I first heard of him. And then somehow, I don't know how it happened, but Amici, who still manages LP, actually was managing them at that point in time. And that's where the partnership with Amici and and Company Full first happened. It was actually a partnership to try to put out dominant species who were completely had their own sound, completely were ahead of their time. There were cats from Farragut Projects Brooklyn. They were the real deal. Everything about them was as real as it possibly can be. I don't know quite what happened, but the day we got the records back from the plant and the day we got our first CD singles back from the plant, they put a kibosh to it. They kind of ended it. They were, I don't know exactly what the problem was, but they were upset about something. And it's, it's not, you know, it's not new. It's kind of like a, a where you kind of self-sabotage yourself in a sense. And, and assess, and, you know, in that, in that, I would think that what happened at that moment was really kind of like a case of self-sabotage because I, we thought, we believed in that record. That record was everything. That record was fly as hell. Yo, I rock my crack, good jack, get over it. Niggas off my scrotum, bitches over my trojan. Slides on the right, let me get some of that light on that mic. Right, I see you the next day, say good night. Here comes the weird one, ha, 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 spear some it was dark and sinister. It was, you know, it was damn it, the whole planet don't understand it. And then put the pain, put put the pain to the brain. <laughs> it was it was hard as hell, dope, man. Dope. What about your evolution, man? Because at that point, you said Company Flow was originally LP's Finn Dolo. It was a group before anybody else joined. Can you talk about the evolution leading to the formulation of CoFlow post Eight Steps to Perfection? Because there is a known fact about Eight Steps and the crediting of Eight Steps. It wasn't credited as Company Flow originally, right? Right. Yeah, I, um, you know, I was, I made, I, I really started writing and, and doing stuff before I moved back to New York is, you know, I really kind of started doing stuff. I really started making some of my first hip hop songs at that point in time. And Eight Steps was one of the songs that I was working on before I kind of came back to New York. Um, but honestly, it was the living with uh, LP at that particular point in time. We had to, during what, during the Libra era and then like the after the Libra time, we really kind of had to, Jamie was company, he was company flow, but it, it didn't sound like company flow. Company flow really came about when we got together and worked. And then when Lynn came in, you know, and, and basically added the glue that completed what we were. So there were records that were done beforehand. There's even the first record I think that me and Jamie were were really on was actually a posse cut when Antex kind of formed the uh, the production group. That was literally the first thing that me and Jamie ever rhymed on. Was that with Jamel? Lived, that was with Jamel. Yes. Right. 
Yes, I haven't heard that since, but that was a song that not too many people have heard or know that was like the first thing that we were actually on together. Nice. So what about Len? Is he already on your radar, you know, with him having a past intern in for Big R Management with Antex? That's where Len comes from. That's why Antex is, is a center to a lot of things. So... Antex, so Lynn lived out where Antex, after Libra, um, and after like working in Libra, Long Island was too far away to actually live and drive back and forth to Manhattan. It's really a pain in the butt. So he moved to uh, he moved to New Jersey when I stayed in New York, and he moved to an area where Lynn was right there, and Lynn was already uh, doing stuff for Teeth. And they were working together and forming Big Arm. And he was already interning as when we threw our first party, I think, for Juvenile Techniques is when we all, when basically Lynn and I met, I mean, when Jamie and I first met Lynn. Got yeah, got yeah. Was that point. So that's when Lynn came into the picture. But yeah, the, the formulation of Company Flow definitely started to take place afterwards. It wasn't a situation where... It was there yet. It was kind of like a, one guy who kind of sounded a little bit like House of Pain. <laughs> and it was, <laughs> it, was, it was us getting together and utilizing, you know, really trying to figure out how to make, how to scientifically make a classic record. Right. Because you already had EPMD, you already had Nas, Illmatic, you already had Midnight Marauders, you already had records that you can see and use as a blueprint to why is this record so dope? Why is this record a classic? And that, you know, and that's what we were on. And EPMD was kind of one of our our markers of, of our mild markers. If we can make a record that sounds like EPMD and, you know, without the fluff and all the rigor mole and all the extra goofy stuff that was just hard and raw and right to the point. That was a record that we were trying to make. How do you think those earliest sessions with Company Flow defined and developed your style, you know, for what would become, in the end, the Fun Crusher EP? Mm. Um, let me give props to Cool G Rap and Ill Street Blues, instrumental. I would have to say that that record, I may have wrote three or four songs. We may have wrote three or four songs um, just off of that record alone. Oh, but it was, yeah, so a bad touch example. So music made for Kooji Rap Piano. That was a record that I literally wrote off of Ill Street Blues. Um, and I, uh, L was, I would have to say, you know, L was more at that point in time, he was, he was young, but he was a student and he liked records and he really liked hip hop records. I was more of a B-boy and had really already gone through a whole life experience of hip hop before we met. Somehow between the two and me being a writer and just and the organization, the organizational aspect of it. And trying to put together a bombing campaign is basically what happened. So we actually kind of worked really well together because we were both on the same time. You know, it really was the only thing that was was that matter was that we had to make a critical, you know, a critical beatdown. Mm. <laughs> no it, pressure. It had to be <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. It just had to be something that had that magnitude. Um 
And we were game for that. Yeah. Uh, the way you had tracks together, but also had solo tracks, was a very Wu-Tang dynamic. Were there ever moments where, you know, LP went back and redid verses because he had that advantage as a producer to make those changes? What was that competitive spirit like between yourselves? Uh, uh, you know, I watched, I guess, the Wu-Tang documentary. I mean, a lot. it was a lot like that. There was a lot of going back and redoing. There was a lot of me doing a verse, him having a verse, him going back and redoing a verse. Yeah, a lot of that was actually going that on. That was a thing that happened. That was a thing that was a, that happened. Um, only thing I really, only thing you can call it was emceeing. It was cut, yo, emceeing was cutthroat, yo. It was just cutthroat. It was what it was. It, it, came, it came out of a space of battling at some point in time. It really was about Mike's supremacy. So if it went down that way, it went down that way, as long as it made it a, you know, a better record. You dropped amid a renaissance for underground hip-hop, and one of those tracks pivotal in that boon was, of course, the fire in which you burn. Easily one of the dopest posse tracks of that year, if we're talking about groups mm. and posse tracks. Can you tell yes. me about collaborating with the indebtable MCs, which included, you know, Jay Treads, the incredible juggernauts um juggernauts and treads were artists who were around during that time and place that we we kind of formed a little bond with and we had kind of did some initial shows with um and uh that record yeah that record was super amazing you know it came about it was like a I think a Robbie Shankar sample nice. uh, that came about, you know, in the studio, ooh, like one or two o'clock in the morning after trying to play around and make something work. Um, L came across the sample and, and it was just, it, I, it was, it, it was put together so early. It couldn't, it, it had no choice but to work. And then everybody else just, everybody just murdered that record. It just, everybody just killed it. It just, everybody felt, to me, felt the same thing that you, this was a record that you had to just bite a chunk out of. Fucking with a nigga like myself, you learn to fail, learn to get shows your records. So unless the host butt naked, you's a loser. The crap is should've kept it till you're lonesome, but you like, look everybody, I'm a silly microphone crumb. Want attention me, I flaunt attention vocally First team on universe me, why your squad is benching locally Don't mention jokingly, ayo them niggas ain't atomic Ain't the comic niggas gutsy After the disemboweling, don't fuck around I need out for your shorty with the crew and she be rape ahead She wanna tape and dreads and thought of you a little stinger My shit'll bring a pin of me, you're bitterly jealous Forever living crazy mind and trying to tell us how you do it I'm devouring you with simple shit'll get props Going back to graph and this blistering love you have for graph talk to me about making loon tns which is easily you know without question one of your most autobiographical tracks at that time and would be you know infamously one of the last tracks recorded for fun crusher plus i felt it needed to be done i felt like even now you know it's like listing songs is kind of trying trying to figure out where you were and where you're going and you can kind of do that through songs i guess and it should be a challenge to everybody to list these songs that were highly influential in their lives and you know and and basically through that i think you can kind of see the direction of things and since graph played a huge part i didn't want to forget and the names i feel like at some point in time i would forget them 
And it, and there was a point in time, like on the trains, where I couldn't write. I literally couldn't write. The trains were bombed. They were bombed to a point where there there were transit cops everywhere. Like it picked up. Like the just the grafters was, was basically out of control. The cops had to ride the trains at nighttime. At one point in time, I couldn't write anymore. I literally had to just sit there and memorize the names. And that's kind of literally what I did. I memorized these names and I I held them in, you know, I held them dear to me in my heart until I was able to actually say them out loud and put them on a record, you know, where I can feel like, okay, this is there. Here's my history. I can put it out there and I can, you know, I know where I've been and I know where I'm going because of where I've been. And that's me, I guess, the moon TNS. Yo, word the fuck up, this is for DJ Miss Motherfucking Undisputed Style Master Flow Phase 2 second. The elevated train line of the day line in the eight. Why well, first encountered the likes of baby 168? Stan is the whiz K56 TKA. Kingpin throw us away back then with it. Who I saw ripping a lot up on the inside of OE. As I progressed to the seven yard early Johnny B. King, Officer 147 CIA. Fuzz, Comic Blade, A. Jackson, A. Two Duster. Cutting school with Roman, hitting my first uni wide. Wide in the L. Very defining son, a moment for you in your career. Indeed, yeah, indeed. Indeed. Was it yourself that did the artwork for the CoFlow releases, those 12 inches? Um, a lot of stuff like the logo. No, not, it was not all me, but I actually did a lot of stuff. Um, obviously, I think Matt Dew did the album cover for Rest in Peace to Matt Dew. But it was a mixture of people. But yeah, anything that you see with early graph writing and stuff on it, and it was just like graph, the label was graphed out. Yeah, that was me. Dope. Dope. That was me trying to put together the whole entire label, you know. At that point in time, like I said, Jamie was younger. He didn't quite under it, that. All of that came from me trying to put together a label. And, and how do you think having a promotional background helped you, you know, maintain and carry this independent as fuck ethos with your work? That's that's what it was. It was like, okay, we're going to do it ourselves, but we're going to do it where you know we're we're on top. The artist is on top. We're going to just do things our particular way so we can have a career. And we're not just looked at as, you know, little retards at the bottom of the totem pole. Right, right. You know, you know which is basically, you know, how everybody thought about, you know. To me, well, I guess with uh, um, R.A., every record, all record labels suck dick. Yeah. The sense is a song, basically, that, that summed it all up at that particular point in time for me. It's like, that's just what it was. The artist was never going to be first unless the artist actually ran the label. And some of that, and some of that actually came from Discord and the rock group Fagazi. So, you know, you, you got it at that particular point in time was, was happening along the same time as, as we were. And somewhere between Libra and somewhere between Discord... <clears throat> I was figuring out a way to, you know, how can we, how can not, can we support ourselves, but how can we thrive and how can a record label actually exist that an artist can run and be in charge of? Not just be in charge of, but be in charge of your own career. Lord, 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 Lord,
actually selling 20 something thousand plus records before we even thought about a raucous records. So no raucous, we didn't feel any which way about raucous at all. Raucous was a label that didn't have anything at that particular point. You know, shout out to Jack and Brian. It's not no diss or anything. They know they were cashing in on our cachet basically at our time. We were like a known quantity. They didn't really have anything. Raucous was a way to for us to extend our our record. Basically, our record was growing. It kept on growing. The EP kept on growing, and it was just a way for us to actually make money licensing the material we already had, which was a coup, and us adding to that material and forming an album. So you know, Raucous was dope. Like the artists and stuff, everything was dope about Raucous. Like after us, then you know, I remember. I think it was Pasta News and Mace brought most deaf in. I remember the day that he first came to the office. <clears throat> so, you know, things really kind of started obviously to pick up at, at, you know, after that. But at that pretty point, at that point in time, they didn't really have anybody. They had a group like the Rose family, I think was one of the first things that they have that they were kind of trying to put stuff out. I think they had something that was, dance related there's a lot of electronic and reggae music they were dropping in in the earliest days wasn't it that yeah that non-hip-hop stuff non-hip-hop stuff and, and it you know i didn't think too much of it was hitting really at that particular point in time we mentioned radio earlier what about radio and stretch and bob and their you know support system for what company flow would become <sighs> Uh, uh, not just for company flow. No, of for course. The whole, yeah, of course. Right, yeah, right. That whole, whole era. Yeah. The whole era was 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 all Stretch and Bobito. And once again, for some reason, some way or another, radio picked back up, you know, when a point in time where there was CDs and there were other things, you know, there was media out that you could record to and stuff. And radio was not that important anymore at that point in time but stretch and bobito were important were critically important to it was literally uh columbia i guess had a station that was big enough that you could pretty much hear in a lot of parts of the city and man everybody tuned in everybody was tuning it was absolutely huge for us the night that like they played eight steps off of a cassette demo before they had the vinyl like they played wow. it for months off of a cassette demo and that's really you think think about it, that's really the thing that kind of blew it up so by the time we actually pressed up vinyl there was already pre-sales it was already you know it was already selling out basically as soon as it got pressed up so 
And it was because of Stretch of Bob playing the demo. And then when we got the vinyl, we took it up there, and it was the first song that they played that night. And you couldn't tell me and L anything. That was like, you know, one of the best moments of our lives right up at that point in time. Okay. To actually hear your vinyl being played. Not, you know, if the, hearing eight steps was awesome, but actually hearing your vinyl eight steps being played and scratched was like another was, level. Another level, right. absolute other level. Do you think people understand the full capacity of the impact of Fun Crusher Plus to this day? It seems it seems that they do. You know, it seems that uh, at least a lot of people who were around during that time, you know, it, to me, Fun Crusher feels like it was bigger than it actually was because of the fact that we had a lot of impact before raucous we had a lot of impact on really being an independent record label yeah. so official was you know was big so it wasn't just fun crush it was the fact that we figured out how to do it ourselves and it was you know all us everything was coming from us and, and you're legitimately <clears throat> one of the biggest you know and best-selling independent rap rap groups back then aren't you legitimately you make because right. legitimate exactly exactly so yeah it was it, I think people knew, and I think, you know, at, I don't think they knew at that point in time, it was actually felt like it was bigger than that. Not for me, I'm, I'm really a, don't exist from a place of ego, but that record was huge for the fact that it, it was a record that helped spearhead, you know, an indie movement in terms of the business and putting out records. Mm -hmm. Everybody, all the interviews, everything at that time was basically all discussed business-wise. All of the conversations with our peers and everything was all, all business. It's all figuring out how to put out records, how to do this, how to get stuff to fat beats, how to, everything was really based off of that. So, like I said, by the time we got to Raucous, we were already, we were already grizzled in what we were doing. And Fun Crusher, you know, really did turn out to be that record for everyone at that point in time. Yeah. And then once again, gotta thank Stretch and Bob for taking us on our first overseas shows. So, it was a, a show where Stretch was a DJ. No, Bob was DJ in Denmark. And that was like the first show that we actually did overseas. We were already known for, you know, doing shows that kind of sounded like our record. So we were already known for being agitated and aggravated and rough, raw, and don't give up. You know, we were already that you know, performing around New York before we got there. But, you know, once we got overseas, that ethos really kind of picked up. And, you know, we were off and running overseas. And, and that, you know, Stretch and Bob for that. It's the classic underground styles of the urban masters. The crazy king, three-finger caps, and sparking tides. It's the classic underground styles of the urban masters. The crazy king, three-finger caps, and sparking tides. It's the classic underground styles of the urban masters. The crazy king, three-finger caps, and sparking tides. Fast forward, Coflo ends up disbanding. It's, you know, an end of an era leading up to the birth of subverse music in 98. What was the inspiration behind starting another label? Um, not being able to complete kind of what we started, you know, and, and I will say this, one of the biggest factors of, of leading to a breakup, and I, I hear people talking about it and not saying whether it's or not knowing whether it was true or not, but in terms of us, there was <clears throat> a difference between 
some of these like younger white kids who were just getting into hip hop at time, what we call, I guess what we call in New York, some of the bridge and tunnel crowd. Right. <laughs> People come in from on the outside and they were wide and they were wide open on LP. They thought, they thought Jamie was everything. They literally thought he did everything. He was the mastermind of everything. How could he not be? It's like they literally would not. <laughs> like they would walk by us, which is perfectly fine at that point in time because it was him having to deal with a lot of the fanboy stuff. But he had way more of that going on than and what we had. And it played a part, like one part of it was good because you were expanding hip hop, right? You're expanding hip hop beyond the, and we, as a, you know, I looked at us as an interracial group. So I looked at us as a group that was helping expand it. But at the same time, you have kids who just know about what was going on in their world. And they kind of spoiled it a little bit trying to basically place themselves into what we were trying to do and becoming artists themselves and trying to figure out stuff themselves. So he gained a great following from that where I kind of, that really wasn't hip hop. That was completely new. What was going on then, this is before M, was was completely new. Like all of these new kids coming in, like this didn't happen. Like hip hop shows in New York didn't look like company flow shows. Company flow shows became their own thing. And it was because of this new crowd that came in who also kind of wanted to make music. And then you have us blowing up and you have industry kind of looking at us like the next Beastie Boys, Mm. which once again, wasn't quite where we were or our ethos of what we were trying to do. We weren't a we weren't a white group. We were a mixed group, but we weren't a white group. So it was it was this thing that these things that kind of turned me off a little bit, but at the same time were the things that actually helped out. So at some point in time, you know our path started to to veer off basically because of that. So I want to just put that out there because some people, I think I've read somewhere where they were like, it could have been because of that or not, like kind of sarcastically. Well, it was because, no, it was because of that. Soon you see, as I flow fluently to frequently, another MC will drop off the face of this earth for what it's worth. I've been the nastiest one since birth. Soon you'll see, as I flow fluently to frequently, another MC will drop off the face of this earth for what it's worth. I've been the nastiest one since birth. I'll do the simple shit, strike harder than Hoffa. Hell, the maladjusted MC, fun crusher. Massive, I'll sign for my condition. Automatic, on slot, connect thoughts, get jostled at your position. Listen, abort mission without further discussion. Dual personality. That was the main. That was the main thing. Besides little other stuff that you know doesn't even deserve to be talked about, that was the main thing. It was just new kids coming on, completely enthused about what was going on, 
not singling out anybody or anyone just and just wanting to be a part of, of it, but only understanding it from them, their perspective. Like their perspective is the only thing that matters, which is kind of some of what you're dealing with, you know, socially, politically in, in America. And, it, you know, it's whole, you know, from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. It's that their perspective. Their perspective is the dominant perspective. That point in time, it, I didn't. I refused to let it be the dominant perspective, or us being the next Beastie Boys, which is shouts to Beastie Boys. But Beastie Boys, they can only be one Beastie Boys, exactly. They can only be right. one. You can only be one. The same way Why they can only be, be one co-flow, right? Exactly. At, at which point this turns you off, so you start to, like you say, find this inspiration and start in another label, which goes by the name of Subverse Music, right? Um, I, it was the, it was literally the aspect cause more or less doing official records was more on me. It was more on me. That was, I had more experience in that. That was kind of my call. Um, and I wanted to continue that because it was still the same thing. You're still dealing with any label outside of, outside of this particular structure is a label dealing with the label first and dealing with the artist last. And that's how I look at it. So I, there was still part of me who wanted to actually create a label that actually helped artists that wasn't trying to own the masters wasn't trying to own the publishing was actually trying to do fair licensing deals like all of this was stuff i was thinking about that really wasn't existing at that point in time the way we know it to be now it felt like company flow was one of the first groups that really mastered that license licensing deal and and you know really really pushing for that. And then, no, you can't have the publishing. No, it's, it's not going down like that. So that was part of our creed, and that's what I kind of wanted to do with Subverse. But, you know, before Subverse, there was a record label called 321, and that's where Subverse kind of came from. Right. I, tried to put, I tried to put a deal together on my own for the Indelibles album, and I came across this label, 321, and we were about to sign a, a deal for the Indelibles album. And right at the point of signing, uh, the lawyer said, I've got to go on vacation or something. Let's pick this up when I get back. And, and the meeting kind of ended and like nothing happened. And somehow that being kind of like a bad business thing. You know, going on, I caught up with the guy later, Ray, who had 321. He had new funding from a well-known old family of money. I won't say who they are, but it's one of the families that controlled the world. It's basically where he was getting his funding on at the time. It was a, a, a guy, like his son, basically one of these guys, their child was trying to run a record label. And he was signing, he wanted kind of a, a rock, hip hop. He wanted everything basically. So they were, I guess they were purging money and, you know, but, um, this guy, Ray basically gave me some bank basically. And I kind of became more of the A&R and a lot of the groups that got signed <clears throat> to subverse were actually on three, two, one. And that went on for like a year up until like April 15th, something like the next year after all the artists got paid and they were working on their projects. Like this dude's father literally cut the money off on tax day. Like the record label just came to an end. Just like that. 
just like that, just out of the blue, it came to an end. And uh, my homegirl Fiona was was working there at that particular label, and she got the meeting with uh, the guy Peter, who was kind of a, a securities brokerage guy, basically, who handled like distressed securities, like a Wall Street guy, basically. He wanted to do something interesting and different, and so that's basically where Subverse came out. Me, Peter, and Fiona. And we literally, you know, I had to basically re-sign everybody to Subverse. And, you know, some of us really got paid twice. So that was kind of like a coup. So before there was even a Subverse, it was getting through the dilemma of 321, setting up Subverse, and then repaying the artists after they had already been paying to work on. And, And it was a coup, you know, it really was a coup at that particular point in time. So we worked off of my ethos of trying to make sure that the artists had the best deals and that they were licensing deals and they were fair and they were, you know, they were to the, you know, they were to the point, Um, which was, you know, appreciated at that point in time. But even still you being an artist and you're coming out and you're first starting, you're not knowing all of that is the case for record labels. You know, some of these cats didn't, wasn't aware of what's going on and was still kind of giving us hard times in, in certain aspects. But once they kind of figured it out, then we really kind of settled in and, you know, had to, you know, try to get to work. And so uh, to get closer to the artists, the Micronauts were already in Atlanta. Um, um Doom had already went down there and me and Science of Life moved down there. Like all there were seven of us. We all moved down to Atlanta and set up a like a, a second office of subverse records there. So all of the artists can kind of be close together. And then while in New York, Peter and Fiona were doing subverse nights and they were basically like some of the first uh atmosphere shows in New York were were through subverse. Like we basically work with Everybody who was basically dope. And then we put our stuff like on the bill with it. And, you know, we had a, we, we had, you know, momentum. We had something that was, was working well and it was, it was really starting to kick in, you know, and then we put out the doom records and then the doom records really started to to create a pro, you know, a profit. And they really started to kind of balance off the label. And this is all I introduced L to Caroline Records. So Subverse was up and running before Def Jux. I was the one who made the introduction to Caroline for Def Jux. So all of these things were kind of hot. There was no hard feelings and nothing. We're all, everybody's cool. Everybody's still family. But, you know, that's basically the way things were and how they kind of came about at that point in time. And everything was working, you know, swell up until 9-11. Yeah, it's a it's a crazy crazy era which I'm going to get into and talk about. But I did want to ask you about working with MF Doom specifically, re-releasing Operation Doomsday. What was that conversation like with Doom? Hmm. Um, that's interesting. I I wouldn't call it more a conversation, right? As more of catching up with Doom. So we caught up with Doom on the in the end burners video. That's where I caught up with him at that point in time. I met him much earlier. Uh, there's a video called Gas Face 
that my man Shake was actually in the video as well. Ah. Third bass, Gat Face. So he was in that. That's where I first met him. I saw him walking, carrying the KMD thing, uh, the artwork, the day basically he came, he got booted out from Electra Records. Like I literally was seeing him walking down the streets carrying the records. So like That's crazy. there was a yeah, there was a connection there. And when he was at the in the in burners video, like he you know what I'm saying? He was, things were a little bit more harder at that point in time. So we just started talking and I was trying to figure out a way to work with him in some type of a way. Because Doom is, he's like me. He's kind of elusive, also a writer, also a real ill kid. Just writers, once again, writers and just ill, ill dudes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just, just, just the illest dudes imaginable. And so... We, we got around to basically, you know, I think he wanted to do something with KMD and I really wanted to do something with Doomsday. And this was before anybody else was kind of working with him. So this is the first kind of like the re, his rebirth, basically. Right, right, right. And, and he, he wanted to do, you know, KMD and I'm like, let's do KMD and let's re-release Doomsday since you have that as well. And let's put both of them out and let's see how they're doing. And that coincided with actually moving to Atlanta and just kind of hanging out a little bit more and getting to know each other a little bit more. Although we're still kind of the same people. We're kind of off to ourselves. We're kind of off. You know, we were loners. So it's not like we're hanging out and, you know, drinking beers together and stuff like that. <clears throat> but dude is definitely my brother. Right, right. You're in each other's presence and there's a mutual respect between one another. All, all the time. Right. Yeah, all the time. All the time. I mean, we ran, yeah, we ran a lot of missions together. We did a lot of stuff together. A lot of stuff I can't talk about. Um, <laughs> the villain. You know, yeah, the villain. There, you know, He's the villain. Right. He, he, he's there to let you know that the villains exist. Only play the games that I win at And stay the same with more rhymes And it's ways to skin cats As a matter of fact, let me rephrase With more rhymes and ways to fill a felines in these days Watch the path of the black one Super villain, he reps clubs who dealt In a drunken stupid chilling Ready and willing to inadvertently fall That plan of any rhymer Wanna or spoil brat Who got more snottier flows and snotty nose Which brings us to the era of progression post co-flow and 9-11 which took an entirely different meaning and levels of importance as we arrive at your solo debut ep plantation rhymes what was the energy behind that project um <clears throat> plantation rhymes came out on september 11 2001 it was a record it literally came out on that day i had to put something out on that day. i couldn't tell you really what it was i don't know I know me and Science of Life, we moved to Atlanta before 2001, but there was something happening going on social politically. I can't quite lay a finger on what it was specifically, but I was supposed to put Black Mamba out on on September 11, 2001. Right. I, fl I flaked on it. I couldn't tell you why. Like It pissed off the label. It pissed off caroline like they couldn't but i so i had to put something in its place so i i put selected songs from plantation rhymes that was on black mamba serums i put it on that just to have something and keep the release date 
<clears throat> but that's really what that that's what I remember most at that point in time was having to try to put something out, not knowing what the hell was going on, but it presenting itself on the day that that record came out. And thank God I didn't put out Black Mamba Serum because it just like everything, everything came to a standstill. And if you were where we were at on Greenwich Street, we're only four blocks away from from the World Trade Centers, really everything really did come to a standstill. What are your memories of that day? Um, I was in the same place at both. The, I was in the exact same place, which is the Holland Tunnel, during the 93 bombing and the 2001 bombing. I was literally in the same place, stuck trying to get in the city coming, <clears throat> coming from Philly. Um, and literally, it happened twice. And I couldn't get into the city for, for days. And then I finally got into the city. <clears throat> and um, I mean, it was a war zone. I, I don't know what else to describe it. It was literally a war zone. The, the military was there. You had military checkpoints going block to block when, you know, obviously there were none before then. Um, I, I, I don't want to be super graphic, but you could smell the dead bodies. Jesus. You know what I'm saying? It was you, you literally, you know, me coming up in my childhood and I'm very, you know, I'm very perceptive and intuitive. Let's just say that. Let's just say I've seen my share of entities and, and stuff. That could be a whole conversation within itself. Mm. But let's say you could feel lost souls in that area. You could feel people who lost their lives and did not understand why or how they lost their lives. That's what it felt like in that area. And that, at that point in time, it, <clears throat> people moved out immediately Subverse was a label that was in a had a whole floor of a building not too far away where actually Puffy had a company called Platform.net that actually sub subsidized our space. So we were the New York office was kind of rent free because we only had a small office where Platform had like the bigger office. Them right. <clears throat> cats moved out. The mob owned the building that they were in. They weren't trying to hear anything about 9-11. All they know is that, you know, we had 12,000 square foot, you know, and they were trying to get paid on on you know, on every every inch of the square. They didn't care who was in the building or not. Um, they tried to capitalize. Oh, son, they just didn't care. Wow. They really didn't care. So it was um, it was super rough. We were at a point in time, and I'm kind of glad it didn't happen. It sounds crazy, but we were working with Sprint at this particular point in time. Like, we were working on a multi-million dollar project with Sprint. Really? Where we were doing video ringers and doing material and content for phones for the advent of 3G networks. So the start of 3G networks, we were on that, and we were about to launch that, and that was about to launch. That was about to launch Subverse, somewhere completely different. 9/11 happened with that. They pulled out from that. Everybody pulled out from the neighborhood, and it was just man, it was not good. 
it was not good. And then you didn't understand why at that point in time. Then you start to figure out and start to hear little things about what really happened. And you were really like, damn, as woke as you possibly could be, this shit happens right up under your nose. You're fucking right down the block from this uh, secret CIA office. You're not knowing. It's, that's your corner store. You share the corner store with these people. These people in charge of, of bringing down the towers and stuff. And, like, you had no idea. And you're right there in it. And it was just, it, it was not good. It didn't feel good. This, Justin, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. I just witnessed a plane that appeared to be cruising uh, slightly lower than normal altitude over New York City, and it appears to have crashed into, uh, I don't know which tower it is, but it hit directly in the middle of... Uh, one of the World Trade Center towers. The plane just uh, was was uh, coming in low, and the t wing tips tilted back and forth, and then it, it flattened out. It looks like it's uh, hit at a slight angle into the World Trade Center. I can see I can see flames now coming out the side of the building, and smoke continues to billow. Can you maybe talk about navigating as an artist between, you know, both extremes of feeling satisfied with your work, but also being aware that back then, like you say, the world wasn't doing so well and changing as dramatically as it was? Um, well, I was lucky enough to have a place down still in Atlanta, <clears throat> which itself was crazy because it was outside of Atlanta in, in a town called Noonan, and it was literally a haunted cotton mill. So it was haunted within itself. I got regular visitors because one was an older gentleman who was actually worked in the cotton mill who died there. He was fascinated by like all the equipment and stuff. This dude used to come and visit me regularly and talk about your hair stand on, on end every single time it happened. I literally had to move all of my furniture around. So when he would like come, you know, phase through the door basically <laughs> like vision just just come through the door <laughs> the hair on my back of my neck wouldn't stand up but you know i was glad to actually have a place there and it was at that place that kind of became therapy basically for black mamba serums <clears throat> and for the nms projects and stuff so the i would call black mamba serums art therapy and i would call nms um, a launch to the war, like the, after 9-11, then came this march to war, basically, that, that you know, took place over the course of the year. And it kind of, you kind of felt like you knew where things were going, but you couldn't quite figure out. It was completely wrong. You're getting more information on what's happening on 9-11, but not enough to really get the full picture on stuff. And it really felt like at that point in time, I was making music for the sake of helping some helping the situation like just literally what could i possibly do <clears throat> to create to to make an anti-war statement basically more more or less what it was so you know you're making it we're making an anti-war statement we're not thinking about record sales we're not thinking about making popular records anymore <clears throat> subverse has folded i am now um 
I had put out Black Mamba on uh, a Japanese like import, like just so I could have a limited edition something out. That led to uh, the Black Mamba's 2.0, which came out on Ninja Tune. Um, you know, which we had a deal where I the money I got for that I also uh, put in the budget for the NMS album, which turned into two NMS albums. <clears throat> so we I sabotaged we sabotaged that deal basically making a record that really couldn't be played on the radio you know in a sense because everything was happening too soon but we felt that we literally had to make the record because we were we were early involved in what was going on but most of the country and most of the world didn't really have a clue <clears throat> didn't have an idea for years you know, after that point, a lot of people still don't have an idea. But at that point in time, we felt like we had a clue to what was going on. And we literally had to say something. And we're talking about a time which has been as evolutionary as it's been educational for you. And with NMS, I think specifically, you're really defining these anxieties of modern life that you're talking about. You're defining this in your music, aren't you? Uh, we are we are defining it. We want to say something at the same point in time. Uh, me and Orca were supposed to, we were supposed to link up, you know, ten years prior to that. It just so happened that we linked up during that time. So you got part of us wanting to make the record that we already that we wanted to make that was more we considered and called it more of like Coltrane and Miles getting together and and love that you know, coming together and making come what may, basically. So we were going to make what we wanted to make. And so you have part of that being the ethos of, of company flow in terms of the music. And then you have us kind of, uh, kind of not stuck in what was going on, but realizing there wasn't, at, uh, it was another crossroads. You couldn't do both. So I could, we couldn't make a dope record without it not actually saying something. It was important that it actually had to say something, but we really wanted to make something else at that point in time. And so that's why we did the record in two parts and we kind of cultivated and curated uh, the music for NMS2, which allowed us to be a little bit more creative, still saying what needed to be said, but actually saying it in more of a creative manner that allowed us to to feel like we did something that covered all of the bases. Still not getting any play. It's still too far ahead of its time, too raw for actually it being played on the radio at that point in time because that, you know, patriotism was at an all-time high. Mm. especially especially you couldn't really play that way too early we didn't go to you know we didn't go to war particularly yet at the first nms record that record was done and in the can it was an anti-war record that was done in december of 2002 before the war started in 2003 so that record was already we already knew what was happening we already knew what was coming and, you know, we felt like that's what needed to be said. And, you know, then the record came out and then the war happened. 
speak loud What signs we whisper the not aloud Renegade apostle descended in lightning Who come down from the clouds Describe out the post for Bible gospel For the meek survival, newborn arrival Battle and negative energy fields And ignorance with a projection shield That's untouchable, indestructible, combustible Invisible, as light as a bubble Floating effortlessly, detecting for the silence In the trouble to smash I never like to make the same record with the same equipment. I don't know what that was. I don't know if that was related to Prince. I don't know what. In in the end, to me, I think it turned out goofy, and I think it had an effect on the sound. But it, it was it played a big part, you know. Like while I was making Black Mamba and NMS records, we didn't have we didn't use Pro Tools. I wanted to use in Sonic Paris. Why? Because it was it just came out and I loved in Sonic products. We I had an EPS, I had an EPS 16 plus, I had a, an ASR. They came out with their own DAW and I wanted to use that over Pro Tools. Looking back at it now, like, you know, less than a year later kind of in Sonic was sold and for the most part kind of went out of business. But I made odd gear choices. <laughs> <laughs> I had like a uh, like Roland, you know. Of course, I had the MPC. Of course, I had other stuff, but I also had like uh, the Roland MC505, which I made King Spitter on. They saw King Spitter on, and I just had some oddball stuff, and that was part of the uniqueness of it. Having like a Warwick fretless bass and like Nord leads, like other things that kind of weren't hip hop stuff but allowed me to do bass lines and just focus on things a little bit differently. Um, once again, all super inspired by Prince, the ability to, you know, at this point in time, not only, you know, my running subverse, I'm writing, producing, mixing, engineering, everything myself. Not only that, the first Black Mamba series, I had a stack of samples and records that, I moved from New York to Atlanta with, and, and them shits came up missing. They were not around. So the whole entire record that I that you know is Black Mama series was an entirely, completely other record that I had to kind of redo something completely different, do everything on the spot. Like I said, mix, engineer, produce, do it right, do everything while running a record label. It's like wow. the most incredible time of my life and literally the time of my life where you feel like okay this is what it's like to come close to an aneurysm basically like mixing them two together like you're so proud and you're like man i'm about to bust something the blood vessel somewhere is about to burst insane that was your version of what happened with those early wu-tang projects in the floods like a one-man wu-tang just kind of yeah just cranking it all, having to remake everything, the same thing, exactly. Yeah, big change for your process, of course. Yeah. I love the video you just recently released for Clusterfucked, which you described as the official historic summation of 2021 in lockdown. Do you feel an increased sense of urgency creating now than you did in the 90s? It was kind of interesting. I would have to say it's not an increase, but I would have to say it's, there's certain things that are going on that's similar. It's still about warfare, even COVID. That's you know, it's still about it's bio warfare as a vaccination campaign. 
the same thing we felt about 9-11 is the same thing we felt feel about what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just as equally important. It's the same thing to make a record now that covers what's going on more than actually me spending a lot of time away from the you know away from actually doing music to actually coming back and thinking you want to really really kind of make fun you know like do something fun have fun with it find find yourself again in the process and make something that people want to hear but once again we find ourselves at a point in time when that's not really the case and we have to make something for the people we have to still do it in our own way where it's like we're we're stuck like where we were before. It's just like a, a glimpse in time that's repeating. It's our deja vu moment where, you know, we'll, of course we got to make something that sounds really dope, but it really does have to, it really does have to match the times that we in. I can't make a, a whatever, whatever you want to call it record. I don't even know what to call them at this point in time because, you know, I'm in the mode of what we're trying to do. <clears throat> but it's not a happy record. And it's not like I'm really ultimately not trying to make a happy record. But what's going on right now is, you know, is similar if you think about it in the early 80s. If you think about Fauci and what's going on, this is the same dude that was in charge of the AIDS crisis. Right. It's, literally the same person it's like literally what went on then that was a big you know a big influence life and you really not being promiscuous and really not having a lot you know that that was when i was you know when you're coming when i was coming about like like you know he ruined that <laughs> he ruined that sowing your royal oats and so he ruined all of that AIDS killed all of that like you really had to find some person and you know that ultimately turned out to be the best thing in life but it's the same thing that's happening. And some of it is utilizing the same people from that and utilizing some of the same people from 9-11. And people need to understand kind of what's going on. And, you know, it's how, they, how they're doing. It's really their business. But we're, we will help out in that process of trying to make sure that somebody has some idea what's going on. So Clusterfuck for us was is really kind of the start of that. Our record, our new record is starting in 2021, but really we're our organizing for this record, you know, has probably started in 2017, maybe a little bit before that. Right. <clears throat> but, but, you know, we're like, Orco is in Minneapolis, you know, I'm in Chicago, we're going back and forth. So like Prince, once again, it's like, we're now more in the land of Prince, but we're also in the land of George Floyd at the same time. Then you have the Chicago movement, the drill movement within itself, and the people and you know, like MCs dying every week. It's just, it's it's a completely different era that's, that looks eerily the same. Has it been challenging to turn, you know, what now goes down and remembered as easily one of the darkest years, darkest two years in human history? Mm-hmm. Has it been difficult turning that into a silver lining with so many projects in the works right now? Um, not really, because, you know, ultimately the isolation and stuff over the two years, I'm, you know, I'm a person who who's really isolated more than he is a social butterfly. So from that particular aspect, it's not hard. Yet on the other end, I do feel like 
I want to make different things besides what I'm doing. And that's kind of what my solo, that's what Sonoluminescence is about. And it's basically allowed me to make a positive record for every negative record made. So every record I got to smash on somebody, let me make a record that's also positive, that, Mm. you know, that supplies a balance some a balance of living basically because the the this survival mode is not the mode we're supposed to be in at this point in time True the sinners of the scriptures, granted call inscription, hidden covenant encryption, in time book of judges, dealing with a lack of conviction, no high hidden hand, hasten arrival, Moshiach, one demon religion, vessels of silver, copper, golden royal crown, humpback king has arisen, high priest, triple six, Jared Kushner's prophetic vision. On Can you talk about these two new NMS projects which are in the works right now? So NMS uh, 3, uh, which is liberation is the only thing left is the first one and how we work and we do work in pairs and what we have a tendency of doing i guess is put the most immediate sound out first the most immediate thing that needs to be said the most immediate sounds the most immediate beats that kind of catch your ear right away and and forms a opinion about something the first moment you put it on. So before you even hear lyrics, you hear like, oh, this record is going in a particular direction. And that's what NMS 3 is. And NMS 4 allows us once again to curate the material, sit on it, have a maturation process go on and have the songs that are more conceptual and more creative and more... uh, where we feel that we can kind of try to pull off both. Mm. So NMS 3 is immediate. NMS 4 was, can we have our cake and eat it too? Is it possible? And then sonoluminescence is, like I said, for every one negative thing, I have to try to counter something positive. And that's basically kind of the way that I'm working through this particular period right now. So... Moving forward, different things are happening, but you know, right now, this is what we need to kind of work through and try to make happen. And of course, Superconductor is the name in the latest track. It just recently dropped. It's available and streaming right now. What can you tell me about Superconductor and your evolution making this track as a group? Uh, Superconductor is interesting because it's literally kind of the song from an NMS, the earlier NMS era. So it's like 2000. 2005 beat right when we first started to come to back together to do nms3 in 2017 and so those lyrics were actually done in chicago when chicago was on fire jack chicago was was the gunfire and chicago was too much and it would, you know, it's a record that's kind of influenced by stuff that's going on with that. That's why it's kind of agitated in what it is. <clears throat> and it's the same time, it's, you know, it's another timely record kind of covering some of the issues that are, are holding the states back or holding the world back on top of that. So it kind of includes everything. And then, you know, we came across the, uh, the, you know, the visuals for it. And we thought the visual, actually Oracle had a line in it 
that said brain fucking the population. And that led me to find this crazy movie that Fear Without a Face that literally had like these killer brains in it. And that kind of, you know, allowed us to create a visual aspect. What we really want to do is try to create visual aspects for each song. <clears throat> and so that's basically one of the things that we're doing with this, with the first one. But the first one is basically like seven, eight songs. Um, the most immediate presence, there's Animal Crackers, there's No Man, there's War Teacher, there's Liberation is the only thing left. There's Atomic Friends Network, there's Clusterfuck and Superconductor. And I mean, literally, it's what it's a classic. It's already a classic. So what what we're doing is just kind of putting it out. We're trying to time the releases. So they're kind of more like time capsules and it allows us to kind of create the most accurate kind of counterpoint to what's going on. It allows us to, to be able to do a counterpoint, kind of speak of what's going on, but then try to figure out something solution orientated as, as well. So that's how we're releasing it because it just, I, I don't know, at this point in time, it just doesn't really make sense to put something, the project fully out when you haven't been out in a while and it, you know, you're wasting like all your shots basically. Right, so right. there is, there is the algorithm in place. You basically, the algorithm is mathematics. And so you really have to use your mathematics and do the mathematics to figure out the rhythm and pacing that works for you. This is poor people's day. Misery, conflict, and hardship. Lack of clean water and landmines. Corrupt policy makers who undervalue equity and try to steal up your resources. Be on some bailout your country by privatizing your energy reserves. While poverty is spreading like wildfire, you let them drown in debt on compounded interest. Disease, pollution, prostitution, and child labor. Billions living in repression every day. While history is written by the conqueror, expropriating your wealth. JP Morgan City Group and World Bank. This is for people's day. We exercising our right to redistribute resources. We want self-reliance and equitable consideration. We don't need no IMF structure adjustment. 400 years of rape and free labor will start with reparations. You want to end the stabilization, stay the fuck about our nation. Don't let this animosity build. America behind the headlines, behind the scenes, look at class warfare, inequality, and greed, and the quest for globalization. I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people saw you with me where you were!